Change Nation. My guest today is a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in banning landmines across the world. He also lost a leg 25 years ago. He's the founder of a wonderful organization, Survivor Corps, and he has a wonderful new book um, just out in paperback called Getting Up When Life Knocks You Down, Five Steps to Overcoming a Life Crisis. He is here today to share his wisdom, his tips, on really how to get through some tough stuff, which I know a lot of us are facing right now. It's a pleasure to welcome you on the show. I know that we've, we've met and talked before. It's great to be here. Thanks. Jerry, you have an incredible story. Um, for people who don't know your story, talk us through what happened 25 years ago, how that moment in life just completely changed who you are and what happened. I like to say moments in life actually make us more ourselves, probably. It is a huge change of before and after where things blow up, in my case. So I was 20 years old, and I took my junior year abroad, as we call it, from Brown University, where I was the first non-Jew or Christian to graduate with a degree in Judaic studies. So I was interested in the Judaic context for Christianity, went over to the Holy Land, walked in the footsteps of the prophets, and boom. No one had told me that, in fact, if you do that, if you're Elijah, Muhammad, Jesus, or Moses today, and you took those same paths, um, these are minefields. And that's what I did. I went in one of these areas in the Golan Heights, um, went camping with two friends, and um, I didn't know it was a minefield until suddenly the earth exploded. My right leg was blown off below the knee, and my left leg was blown open. So it was a real wake-up call at 20, um, you know, being smack in the middle of a minefield and wondering, what do you do now? Since that's happened, what can you say has been the way that you have moved through that? Which most people would think is a complete crisis and they have every right to be upset, angry and go into an abyss and be depressed. Which you are certainly none of those things. I think it takes time. Uh, you know, time heals is the cliche, but there's something, there's no substitute for that. I mean, you have to go inward and outward as you recover. In my case, I spent about six months in a hospital in Israel. Um, but back in that minefield, there was something that happened to me that I thought was very interesting. Where I think we know sounds that when we're going to die. Um, in that minefield where I, by all accounts, would die, I saw myself bleeding to death. And in fact, every move we would make for the next hour, turning right or left, could have set off another explosion. But there was something inside me, a voice in my head, that said, you don't die this way. You know, it was more forceful, like, you, this is not how you die. There is purpose. It was like a flash frame, and then blood and, and sort of agony resumed. But something happened there, and I thought, okay, maybe it's the testosterone in us that just says, I refuse to die, or I'm not going out easily. So something about our very survival um, teaches me that we're wired, to, of course, to fight to live. But then you have the, not just the sprint of recovery, but the marathon of recovery. How do you really get through something so physically and emotionally changing as loss of a limb? And that requires process. Uh, it took me probably two years to reach what I think is the first phase of recovery, which is facing facts. Um, my leg is gone. I can't roll back the clock. It's not growing back. You know, I'm not a starfish. I can't make it come back. Um, I'll be living with this boring thing called a prosthesis and learning how to work with it. So that was, um, took some time, two years, in fact, for it dawned on me that, in fact, all of this was permanent. So it's a lot of things that go into recovery. Um, for me, there's a spiritual underlying piece where you, in a sense, learn that you're more than your body yep. and therefore can 
do more than what your body does. I know in the book um, you mentioned five, I think it was five things that really got you through and can get anyone through. I mean, I don't know how many people lose limbs. You probably know these statistics off the top of your head. How many people lose a limb? In, well, from landmines, there about, but in the 1990s, it was about every 20 minutes someone was getting blown up. Half the people were dying. Uh, there were about 300,000 amputees from mines around the world and growing by the day. Um, but yeah, we learned not just from my own experience, but from interviewing and working with thousands of these amputee survivors. What is your secret for survivorship? Like, how do you do it? Not just sort of get stuck and devolve in depression and, and sort of suicidal thoughts and isolation. But how does someone evolve and grow strangely stronger after the worst has happened? Um, and that's where from survivors around the world, including my own experience and research on resilience, we developed this schema for five steps of how to overcome your worst nightmare, shall we say. And so the first one is face the facts. Face facts. So that's breaking through the denial that may be the hardest one. You know, your life has become unmanageable. Something needs to change. You're bottoming out on something or you're just with such intense pain and loss that you have to do the math of what's happened to you, but also emotions are facts as well. If those aren't on the table, you're missing a whole slew of facts that um, are as real as you know the chairs we're sitting on. Did you at any point wish that you'd died? Did you, because I think a lot of people sort of, they prefer a different outcome than the tragedy that they had. I think that brings us to the second step, which is choose life. I would say I've always been a person who wanted to sort of like, swing to the next monkey bar or have hope at the end of the tunnel. So I would say there were dark times during those six months and during the, the two years of recovery, I would say. But never once hmm, would you want to, temptation to give up, which is a form of death, um, was there and there were dark moments along those lines. But not wanting to live, I always wanted hope. I wanted tomorrow to be better than the pain of today. Did you ever look at your friends and go, why me and not them? No, but I sort of, there was another way of looking at things, which was sort of, why not me? Like, why should it be them? Mm -hmm. So I think people do look at trauma and say that it's very natural to be in a victim mindset, which is why me, self-pitying, blaming, resenting. There are hallmarks of victimhood that we have to look out for. And I um, tried to practice another way of looking at it, like, well, why, you know, I'm so glad it wasn't my two friends. And I guess if it happened to me, then somehow I have the grace or resilience to overcome it. Like, life gives us our things. This just happened to be one of my things. Step number three. Number three is reaching out. We know that when we're hurt, the temptation is to go in, in out, isolate. But that's actually the very thing that will kill you because we're social beings. We need social support. So reaching out could be family, peers, friends, but particularly empathetic companions, people who know what you've gone through. I learned from other amputees, other people in wheelchairs, and, and understood that there was a fellowship of suffering in those people who had shared something similar to what I was going through. Um, so reaching out is essential, even though it's very tempting like a snail when you're sort of plucked to sort of pull in and close off, uh, but that's what's going to kill us in the end is that isolation. Step four. Step four is get moving. And that is really the physicality, but also the emotional determination um, that's required to get unstuck from that place of the past and to move forward, move through it, um, get to the next day, get out of the house, get in your wheelchair, do your, I would joke, like your survivor sit-ups. How do you get in shape for life again? And that requires a lot of effort. Um, even if you're moving inward, 
um, to get to a deeper or stronger place. Um, you know, I know many people in wheelchairs who don't have a lot of physical movement in their life, but there's still this fierce inward movement or determination to move forward, and that's essential. And the fifth, if I remember, is about giving back. Mm -hmm. Fifth is give back, yeah. and I, that was the secret sauce for resilience, or when we looked at people who overcame with greater strength, and those who sort of devolved and get stuck and were sort of in an entitlement mode or in a taking position. Those who gave in small and big ways, they, they were the ones who actually succeeded with style and grace and power and didn't wear it on their sleeves, they just did. And it offered them perspective. Um, you know, the giver is given to, receives. So it's a cycle of survivorship that I think is essential and prevents us from sliding backwards into our victim experience or mentality. So giving is, is essential to seal the deal. Do you tell people to give themselves a period of time to cry and be mad and blame and hurt and be a victim and then get out of it? Like, is it essential to actually go th through all those emotions, stay in there for a while and then get out? Yes, but I remember when I was in the hospital, I mean, I never tell anyone anything, perhaps. I would say these are what survivors share that has helped them. It's the peer support, like in a bottle. Um, I remember being in the hospital and a psychiatrist came and talked to my mother and the friends and sort of diagnosed like what I'd be going through and I would have to break through denial and I seemed sort of too happy. I must not be in touch with what had happened in losing my limb. And uh, that time would come where I would bottom out and be depressed and maybe suicidal. So when I heard that, I was infuriated that someone would diagnose me or comment on what is so personal as my version of recovery. So I, I, at our peril, I think, do we... Um, expect or diagnose or validate, validate in psychobabble terms of what someone's going through. They go through what they go through when they go through it. That's sort of the nature of it. I think on the five steps, they're more like cycles. You could, um, like some people jump to get moving, but eventually the facts will have their way. The grief will have to come. You, you can, but these are survival skills. Like, uh, you know, there's some people I profile in the book who talk about how they lost their father suddenly, then they, you know, moved forward life to get over it and they were told not to cry or, you know, suck it up. And then they, you know, got married, had six children, moved on, and it wasn't until they were 40 that when things weren't working, they were asked, you know, tell me about your father. And this particular person in the book cries for like the next three months. Um, she had gotten so busy moving, jumping to step four, without actually cycling back ever that she had to do it in her 40s, go back to what were the facts of her life when she was 13? What really happened and what did she feel about that that had been buried all that time? But grief like a river will flow and carve out canyons. And so you know these, these are five steps or cycles or stages that have to be dynamically participated in. And they're very personal. So I would say in any given day, do one, two, three, four, or five of any of them in any little teapot or small bit that you can, and then you probably will net a little positive that day. Jerry, at the time, did you have a relationship with God, a faith? Did it strengthen? Did it lessen? Tell us about that element. I would say I, yes, I, I was probably my most religious at the time it happened, you know, sort of Christian and Bible reader, studier, in fact. And, um, and then, of course, getting blown up in the Holy Land seemed rather ironic. Where's the protection in that? Yeah. 
So I would say it was confusing, but clearly God did not reduce my pain, didn't stop me from bleeding in that minefield, didn't silence the mines, um, and didn't shorten my stay in the hospital from six months. So there wasn't this favoritism. And the more I prayed for some gumball from this dispenser in the sky to sort of give me an out, none of that ever came. So I think it transformed my, or perhaps matured my um, experience of the spiritual and of God, of what it is and isn't in this world, and maybe what one could expect. So I prayed for healing, or learned to pray for healing in a broader sense, not just for help this scar tissue to heal or get rid of the infection. I mean, positive thinking and all that is wonderful. But at a deeper level, have this circumstance work its way in my life in such a way that I can grow stronger um, to be of service. So this other piece of not just um, praying for yourself, but praying with purpose for others. I think love and compassion, it's not actually about you know, ministering to ourselves all day long. The, the point and the role models are to give out to others. So, so I would say I morphed from a religious person to what one may call a spiritual person, but strangely, a rather grounded and pragmatic person that's sort of in the moment, right here on these seats, this is where we are. And therefore, that's what we're, that's spiritual. Jerry, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back. Keep watching. guest is Jerry White. He is co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1997, also lost a leg to a landmine blast, and the author of the wonderful book, Getting Up When Life Knocks You Down. Jerry, we're talking about faith and God and spirituality. Have you found in survivor stories that that typically gets stronger? Does it become something that people find hope in? Um, is it something to sort of develop as you're facing any life crisis? I would say that the step number two, choose life, implies perhaps that light and hope. Um, so faith for me, or as I've seen it and learned from survivors of all faiths around the world, might just be believing that there's light, believing that you're more than your body, believing that tomorrow could be better than today. So the very basics of hope and light and longing uh, means that you're alive and aspiring for a future or for a growth. So I think that survivors who know they're more than their body, by the research as well as from our interviews, showed that they had a competitive advantage in survivorship and moving on because they could more easily try to project or make meaning out of what happened to them, find purpose in it, create a storyline of what was happening and why, as opposed to the pure depression of like, oh, life sucks and then you die. That, that's an option. I haven't found it a real motivating one for people along the path. What's the meaning you gave to what happened to you? You've got 25 years looking back. I know you mentioned before we started that you went back to what you call your personal ground zero. Has the meaning changed that you gave it a, a year after it happened versus now 25 years after it's happened? I think in the early years it's about surviving. 
Um, and that's why I, didn't, I waited over 20 years to write a book about survivorship, which I think is a dynamic and positive way of living in the face of death and disaster and disability. Like it's not, um, it's not something that I had the wisdom or knowledge about when I was in my 20s or 30s. It came to me over working in this arena of empathy and compassion all around the world and looking at what, how do people really heal. So for myself, there's an evolution. Um, and a deepening of my understanding. As you mentioned, I went back just this year, after 25 years, to my personal ground zero. I'd always gone back to Israel, had many friends do work in the area in Palestine, Jordan, and Israel with victims of war. But I hadn't gone back to the minefield, the place. And so in an effort to try to get Israelis to understand more about landmines, on one hand, I went back as a little personal checkup to say, I wonder what I'll feel like when I go back to Tel Aziziat in the Golan Heights and see exactly where I was blown up. And it's been cleaned up, I hope. No, I, I think I was the last one to do any demining there. It's still wow. just as it was. You know, no mines have been cleared. What's different is now there are lots of barbed wire fences and signs that weren't there when I went camping. So it took years for the Israelis to mark and map their minefields and to sort of take some responsibility on that front. So I went back and I'm wondering, like, you know, even with the reporters, will I cry? Will I be angry? Will I be numb, like it's sort of a personal checkup. Do you go back? Not everyone has to do this, but for me, I found it interesting. So I went back, went to this top, and I said, well, that's where I went to sleep, went to sleep. That's where we had the bonfire. That's what we were reading. That's where I went to the bathroom. That's where all of this came back to me, right? The memory of 25 years before. And what was fascinating was I had forgotten who I was before the explosion what I felt, you know, here, I never went camping again for 20 years. So suddenly on the top of that minefield, in this ridge in the Golan Heights, I felt a surge of joy that I had never really experienced. The sense of like the innocence before the fall. So the question became to me, and the evolution one for me spiritually was, who are you as a whole person? Always a good question. Who are you before? You know, the book talks about before and after moments in our lives that, you know, we live through lots of scar tissue and, and as we go through the years. But more fundamentally, who are you really? Do you remember? And going back to when I was 20 in my mind was a very enlightening experience to say, oh, I remember how innocent and lovely it was before the Big Bang. How happy I was. I was humming when I stepped on a landmine and I had forgot the humming. How did you create this organization, Survivor Corps? Did it, was it just obvious that that's what you should now do, is to take a stand for what had happened to you? And also tell us a little bit about the organization. Mm -hmm. So we started as Landmine Survivors Network in the 1990s. So I had lived a life of you know, graduating from Brown, moving to Washington, D.C., and sort of working on non-proliferation and national security issues in Washington for a number of years. So I sort of recommend that a lot of people take a wound experience and immediately move quickly to create maybe an organization or mission around a lost one or a loved past. Um, in my case, I was glad to have sort of lived life and it was really 10 years afterwards that I met another landmine survivor for the first time. His name was Ken Rutherford and he became the co-founder of what was then called Landmine Survivors Network. And he said, Jerry, you know what? You're tracking the wrong weapon of mass destruction. Landmines have killed more people than nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons combined. And with your personal experience losing a leg to a landmine in Israel and your professional experience in arms control, why don't you join this 
new campaign to ban landmines. Again, that we share in the Nobel Prize um, for that leadership. We were the first international organization of survivors to come and be birthed in the 1990s in that movement. So for me, it was one of those alignments where your, your cerebral work of you know, arms control and thinking matched more heart-based humanitarian impulse to help people. And you know, ding, ding, why don't we join these things? And really, I think joining passion to work is a big thing. And then we have worked you know, for 12 years, morphed it into a broader mission of Survivor Corps, which is to help the victims of war and violence heal and transform their communities. And now we're in 20 different countries and have done survivor leadership trainings and worked um, rather broadly, including now helping vets who are coming back to this country from Iraq and Afghanistan. What would you tell someone who has you know, lost their job or had a terrible health diagnosis or maybe their husband or wife's cheated on them, so just gone through you know, their own version of a personal life crisis and are either in blame or just don't know how to see the future any brighter than, than where they're at now. What do you think they really need to hear? You know, that's that awful saying that, you know, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I don't think it's that simple. I think you actually have to choose your happy ending. So your personal determination, your choice, your will in the matter is essential, maybe the most critical and central thing. People perhaps don't want that amount of responsibility on them, particularly when you're in pain, you want someone's to blame. I mean, this is a country in the United States where we're seeing increasing victim mentality, entitlement, every two seconds another lawsuit. But victimhood means you're resenting, self-pitying, blaming others, not taking responsibility, taking more than you're giving, and you're stuck in the past. That's like an addiction, and it's dangerous. When those hallmarks or, or, or sort of attitudes are creeping in and layering on your life, um, only you can sort of choose and climb your way out. So I think personal determination, but that sense of holding the center and fighting for who you are at your core, that's essential. Um, and then take some time for some of these to find the way out of this pit. Um, you'll find your own way but only you can do it, and your choice and will for hope in a future is fundamental. So just so that everyone knows, the book is Getting Up When Life Knocks You Down, Five Steps to Overcoming a Life Crisis. I also would be remiss to ask you the question, how do you feel about our new um, Nobel Peace Prize recipient? Oh, I think it's beautiful. Um, aspiration and hope, as we just talked about, is one of the most healing and transforming things in the world. So there's all this quibbling, quabbling about, you know, has he earned it yet? Um, I'm a type of person who believes that sort of the future is also here, like people's intentions matter, the visions of good and peace in the world matter, and actually begin a process of healing and transformation. So it doesn't trouble me that um, the award is now in a celebration of hope and peace for the future. Um, it's not a CV builder, it's not a thing. It's a choice that the Nobel Committee made at a time in history that they thought this was the most fundamental shift and change in terms of multilateral engagement in the world. So things had fundamentally changed and this person had sparked a vision that has been resonating. So it's a less about Obama, I believe, and more about hope and transformation. So inshallah, we will inshallah. see that come true, that, that the visions become real. That's how we work. I completely agree with you. What a pleasure. Thank you for being on the show. My pleasure.
for people who want to find out more about Jerry, his work, um, Survivor Core, please go to that website. That is Survivor Core, and that is spelled C-O-R-P-S, like the French way, dot org. And for more incredibly inspiring interviews, um, change agents, change experts, change survivors, please be sure to visit us on the web at first30days.com and also changenation.com. Thanks for watching. Mm -hmm.